Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 27th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Ernie Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB has issued a number of decisions eroding the jurisdiction of the UR and IMR process for technical mistakes that it claimed to have invalidated the process. These cases then handed the issue of what is appropriate medical treatment over to the workers' compensation judge to decide. As a result of these decisions, UR and IMR seemed as though it was suffering a slow death by a thousand cuts. But the trend of eroding UR and IMR jurisdiction may have suffered a setback at the hands of a new Court of Appeal published decision. Dorothy Margaris suffered a work-related injury in that case to her left foot and lumbar spine while employed by the California Highway Patrol. The State Compensation Insurance Fund was the adjusting agent for this claim. Her treating physician submitted a request for authorization of medical treatment to the state fund proposing to treat applicant with a lumbar epidural injection. And the state fund denied the request. The claimant then timely requested an independent medical review and the necessary medical records were sent to Maximus Federal Services for IMR determination. Maximus issued its IMR decision after the 30-day time requirement expired, upholding the state fund's denial of the proposed medical treatment. Magaris appealed the IMR determination to the WCAB, which directed the matter to an administrative law judge for a hearing. Applicant argued that the IMR determination was invalid because Maximus failed to issue it within the 30-day time period required by the Labor Code and the regulations. The workers' compensation judge agreed that the IMR determination was issued 13 days late but nevertheless concluded that an untimely IMR determination does not confer jurisdiction on the workers' compensation judge to decide any medical treatment issues. Then, a majority of a three-member panel who heard her petition for reconsideration agreed with the applicant and went on to find, contrary to the IMR determination, that the proposed treatment was supported by substantial medical evidence and was consistent with the treatment schedule. One member of the WCAB panel dissented and would have found that the IMR determination, though untimely, was valid and binding on the parties. Now, the Court of Appeal disagreed with the WCAB and reversed the case in the published decision of California Highway Patrol and the State Compensation Insurance Fund versus the WCAB. The 30-day time limit is directory rather than mandatory, and accordingly, an untimely IMR determination is valid and binding upon the parties as the final determination of the administrative director. The Court of Appeal interpretation implements the legislature's stated policy that decisions regarding medical treatment should be made by doctors, not judges. The legislature intended to remove the authority to make decisions about medical necessity of proposed treatment for injured workers from the appeals board and place it in the hands of independent, unbiased medical professionals. 
Generally, time limits applicable to government action are deemed to be directory unless the legislature clearly expresses a contrary intent. Construing the labor code time limits as directory rather than mandatory, in this case, best furthers the legislature's intent in this regard. The California Department of Insurance announced a decision in a major insurance case pitting a small business against Berkshire Hathaway-owned workers' compensation insurers. The decision found that the insurance company used a complex insurance scheme to circumvent regulatory review of its rates and policy terms to the disadvantage of small and medium-sized businesses. California Insurance Company, or CIC, is a Berkshire Hathaway company and the seventh largest workers' compensation insurer in California by premium volume. The commissioner found that CIC filed one set of rates and insurance policies with the Department of Insurance, which it then sold to Shasta Linen, a small family-owned business. And then following that, by having another Berkshire Hathaway company sell Shasta Linen a second insurance policy with different rates and terms that had never been submitted to the department for review. The lure for small businesses was seemingly attractive lower workers' compensation premiums, but that attractiveness evaporated when the small business owner realized they were on the hook to pay the cost of workers' compensation claims, which eclipsed its original premium savings. Shasta Linen originally purchased a guaranteed cost workers' compensation policy from California Insurance Company. When a business buys a guaranteed cost policy, it knows what its rates will be for the duration of the policy. The insurance company later had one of its affiliates, another Berkshire Hathaway entity, sell Shasta Linen a second insurance policy called Equity Comp, which is not a traditional guaranteed cost workers' compensation insurance policy. Under the Equity Comp insurance program, the risk of claims was essentially shifted back to the small business, which would end up paying additional premiums and fees in the policy term if it suffered from increasing claims. The second insurance policy was written by another Berkshire Hathaway company, Applied Underwriters Captive Risk Assurance, which is in the same corporate holding group as CIC and shares the same board of directors and executives. This new equity comp insurance program essentially left Shasta Linen to be self-insured and also locked it into potentially making various ongoing payments to the insurance company for seven years, well beyond the three-year period of the initial policy. The equity comp insurance policy not only uh, changed the rates, it also added new expensive cancellation and non-renewal penalties. Under the original guaranteed cost policy, there is no non-renewal penalty. But when Shasta Linen did not renew the equity comp policy, it was sent a bill for nearly $250,000. In addition, the new equity comp insurance policy had an additional term that sought to deprive Shasta Linen of its right to appeal to the insurance commissioner. Instead, 
The unfiled equity comp insurance policy required all disputes to be governed by Nebraska law through arbitration in the British Virgin Islands. The commissioner found that the company failed to file the equity comp insurance policy or its rates with the Department of Insurance contrary to California law. Commissioner Jones concluded that the equity comp insurance scheme was illegal and void as a matter of law. The commissioner ordered California Insurance Company to repay any amounts paid by Shasta Linen in excess of the premium under the guaranteed cost policy. And now our crime report. Federal prosecutors have brought 13 criminal cases that charge a total of 22 California defendants in health care fraud schemes. Several medical professionals were charged as part of the sweep, including five physicians, a psychiatrist, one pharmacist, and an occupational therapist. The cases allege various schemes that led to more than $161 million in fraudulent bills being submitted to publicly funded health care programs such as Medicare and TRICARE. The cases filed in Los Angeles and Santa Ana federal courts are part of a nationwide sweep announced in Washington by Attorney General Loretta Lynch. She said that criminal and civil charges have been filed against 301 individuals across the nation who allegedly participated in health care fraud schemes involving about $900 million in false billings. The cases filed in the Southland involve actual losses of more than $125 million, with the bulk of those losses associated with five cases related to schemes involving compounding pharmacies. The schemes involved compounding pharmacies who were provided with large numbers of prescriptions, generally for pain medications that carried huge reimbursements, often more than $15,000 for each prescription. The prescriptions were written by doctors who received kickbacks from marketers or from telemedicine websites that had little or no contact with the patients. The prescriptions were written for patients who, in many cases, did not want the prescriptions, had never met the prescribing doctors, or had no idea why they were receiving the medications. In many cases, the beneficiary information was being used without the knowledge of the patients until the prescriptions showed up at their homes. One Palmdale pharmacy allegedly received more than $46 million in only six months using this scheme. Another pharmacy in Corona received nearly $6 million over the same six-month period. A marketer allegedly received illegal kickbacks of as much as 65% for referring prescriptions to the compounding pharmacies. A Florida-based operator of a telemedicine website was charged with health care fraud for allegedly misusing the identity and medical credentials of a physician to submit prescriptions to the compounding pharmacy. The criminal complaint alleges that two local pharmacies received more than $6.5 million in payments in 2015 alone. In a third case, the owner of a La Mirada pharmacy, two marketers, and a doctor were indicted on charges of paying and receiving illegal kickbacks. Health insurers paid the pharmacy, Valley View Drugs, more than $20 million, and the pharmacy paid nearly half of that to companies associated with the marketers. 
In other cases, a doctor who had offices in Temecula and Mariloma allegedly submitted nearly $12 million in fraudulent bills to Medicare for unnecessary vein ablation surgery. Another doctor was charged for helping the owner of a Granada Hills medical clinic who recruited Medicare patients with promises of free equipment and used their beneficiary information to bill for services that simply were never provided. One of the investigators said that in one scheme, the proceeds were laundered using a car wash, a plumbing business, and an escrow company. Another case charges three defendants in a scheme to defraud the health benefit plans established for members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union and Federal Express employees. Participants in the scheme allegedly paid beneficiaries of those plans to undergo unnecessary sleep and nerve conduction velocity studies that were then billed to the plans. The defendants operated facilities in Sherman Oaks and San Pedro, where the testing was conducted as part of the fraud scheme that submitted at least $16 million in bills to the union and FedEx health plans. The cases announced this week in Los Angeles are the result of investigations conducted by multiple state and federal law enforcement agencies. The federal officials just published the 2015 Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Control Program Annual Report. The annual report details the federal enforcement actions and the monetary gains from efforts to fight fraud and abuse throughout the prior year. Officials estimated that settlements and judgments resulted in approximately $2.4 billion returned to both the government and private parties last year. From 2013 to 2015, the return on investment for the program has been $6.10 for every $1 expended. Further, the Department of Justice convicted 613 defendants and the Office of the Inspector General brought 800 criminal actions against individuals and entities involved in health care fraud and abuse-related crimes. The Office of the Inspector General also excluded 4,112 individuals from further participation in federal health care programs in 2015. In Medicare, medical professionals may be banned from seeking money to see patients if they've been convicted of defrauding a health care program or fraud-related offenses. But those banned providers have no problem starting a second career in California's workers' compensation system. No such vetting occurs on a regular basis for workers' compensation medical treatment providers. For example, Medicare banned Dr. Thomas Herrick in 2006 after he pleaded guilty to federal charges. Herrick then found a new line of work in the workers' compensation medical system. His job was to review data on injured workers' sleep patterns and issue reports needed to bill insurers. Five years later, prosecutors accused Herrick of fraud again. That case is pending in Orange County Superior Court, and Herrick's attorney said Herrick is disputing the charges. But in the federal health care system, there have been numerous successful criminal and civil health care fraud investigations in 2015. These included an $800 million settlement in which a company allegedly paid kickbacks to physicians through selling interests in exchange for referrals. 
a $54 million settlement by drug companies for knowingly underpaying rebates owed under the Medicaid drug rebate program, 156-month imprisonment, and $1.2 million restitution payment for an individual medical supply company owner for submitting false claims to Medicare for hundreds of medical devices. The report also disclosed a $47 million settlement by a laboratory for paying physicians kickbacks or patient referrals and billing for medically unnecessary testing. And the report highlighted the largest national health care fraud takedown in history, charging 243 individuals, including 46 medical professionals, for alleged participation in Medicare fraud schemes for approximately $712 million in false billings. In 2015, the Department of Justice Civil Division Fraud Section focused on hospitals and physicians, it was especially concerned with hospitals and physicians treating patients on an inpatient basis when they could have been treated as outpatients. Another key area of concern was physicians with ownership interests in healthcare entities. 70-year-old Priscilla Villabrosa, who lives in Placentia, was sentenced to eight years in federal prison for running a hospice that submitted millions of dollars in fraudulent bills for end-of-life care for patients who were, in reality, not dying. The same woman recently just completed a four-and-a-half-year term at a federal prison in Victorville for running a separate fraud scheme. She pleaded guilty last December to the new felony health care fraud count. Villabrosa's daughter, 45-year-old Sharon Potro, previously pleaded guilty to the same charge and is expected to be sentenced in August. The mother-daughter pair, along with four others, were charged in 2014 with 25 health care fraud and money laundering counts. The case involves the former Covina-based California Hospice Care, which Villabrosa purchased in late 2007 while under investigation in the earlier case. Last May, two doctors involved in the scheme were found guilty of federal health care fraud after a two-week trial in Los Angeles. The two were scheduled to be sentenced on August 15, at which time each will face a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in federal prison for each count of health care fraud. A number of patients admitted to California Hospice Care testified at that trial, showing that they did not require end-of-life care. In fact, only a small percentage of patients later died, notwithstanding the two doctors declaring that they needed hospice care. Four other defendants who were named in a federal grand jury indictment in September 2014 have pleaded guilty. Villabrosa and her daughter, who was the nominal owner of the hospice while Villabrosa was in custody, paid patient recruiters known as marketers or cappers to bring in Medicare and Medi-Cal beneficiaries. Nurses performed assessments to determine whether the beneficiaries were terminally ill and, regardless of the outcome, the two physicians certified that the beneficiaries were terminally ill even though the vast majority of them were not dying. Hospice personnel altered medical records in response to Medicare audits to make the beneficiaries appear sicker than they actually were. 
71-year-old retired dentist, Dr. Kenneth Weber, who lives in Claremont, was arrested on five felony counts of insurance fraud for allegedly submitting fraudulent claims to patients' insurance carriers for services never provided. In 2013, Weber sold his dental practice to another dentist who began performing dental work on his former patients and billing insurance providers. But the insurers rejected a number of the claims because, according to their records, the work had already been performed, billed, and paid for under Weber's practice. The Department of Insurance launched an investigation and detectives found evidence that Weber falsified claim forms and treating documents, billing insurers for patient procedures and dental work that had not been performed. Authorities alleged that 60% of the patient records reviewed had fraudulent billing associated with their files. His bail is set at $125,000 and he faces up to 10 years in prison if convicted on all counts. This case is being prosecuted by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. A recent study by researchers at Dartmouth College, the University of Pennsylvania, and USC found that cybersecurity and healthcare settings are more often than not circumvented and mostly go unnoticed by hospital IT staff. These researchers interviewed medical personnel in their workplace settings, nurses, doctors, chief medical officers, chief medical information officers, cybersecurity experts, CIOs, IT workers, everyday users, and managers to obtain their perceptions of computer security rules. They also collected reports from medical discussion lists and other literature. In addition, they shadowed many clinicians as they conducted their work. The report describes what can only be described as wholesale abandonment of security best practices at hospitals and other clinical environments, with the bad behavior being driven by necessity rather than malice. And this is certainly not good news for payers of healthcare services such as workers' compensation claim administrators. Identity theft is a centerpiece of healthcare fraud schemes. According to the Identity Theft Resource Center, the healthcare and medical sector has accounted for the highest percent of total hackings of any industry. Cybersecurity efforts in healthcare settings increasingly confront workarounds and evasions by clinicians and employees who are just trying to do their work in the face of often onerous and irrational computer security rules. These are not terrorists or black hat hackers, but rather clinicians trying to use the computer system for conventional healthcare activities. These so-called evaders acknowledge that effective security controls are at some level important, especially the case of an essential service such as healthcare. Unfortunately, all too often with cybersecurity tools, clinicians cannot do their job and the medical mission trumps the security mission. In hospital after hospital and clinic after clinic, Researchers found that users would write down passwords everywhere. Entire hospital units were observed sharing a password to a medical device where the password was taped onto the device. Researchers found emergency room supply rooms with locked doors where, 
The lock code was written on the door, and no one wanted to prevent a clinician from obtaining emergency supplies because they did not remember the code. Thus, researchers found that workarounds to cybersecurity were the norm rather than the exception. They not only go unpunished, they go unnoticed in most settings and often are taught as correct practice. These common forms of ignorance or willful blindness or incomprehension allow organizations to continue to deploy security that does not work. Competing priorities of clinical staff and information technology staff bear much of the blame. Specifically, IT staff and management are often focused on regulatory compliance and securing healthcare environments. Clinical staff, on the other hand, are focused on patient care and ensuring good health outcomes. Those two competing goals often clash. And in regulatory news, Britain's vote to leave the European Union spells regulatory uncertainty for drug companies. The London-based European Medicines Agency, or the EMA, which approves treatments for all EU countries, is expected to have to relocate. The EMA is a European Union agency for the evaluation of medical products. It is roughly parallel to the U.S. FDA. The EMA was set up in 1995 with funding from the European Union and the pharmaceutical industry. The concept was to harmonize the work of existing national medicine regulatory bodies. This plan would not only reduce annual cost of drug companies incurred by having to win separate approvals from each member state, but also that it would eliminate the protectionist tendencies of sovereign states unwilling to approve new drugs that might compete with those already produced by domestic drug companies. The EU is currently the source of about one-third of the new drugs brought into the world market each year. After the Brexit vote, the Association of Germany's Pharmaceuticals Industry said that the EMA would need to move to a city within the EU. Britain's biggest drug maker, GlaxoSmithKline, said the exit vote creates uncertainty and potentially complexity for those in the future, although the impact on its global business would be small. But the UK Pharma Trade Association warned of challenges to future investment, research, and jobs. Industry executives fear upheaval at the EMA could snarl the EU's drug approval process and Britain may have to develop its own domestic regulatory system, leading to further confusion. Although Britain could continue to take part in the EMA system if it remains in the European economic area, like Norway, many of those supporting its exit from the EU oppose that option. As a result, British patients could move to the back of the queue for new medicines as companies prioritize the larger EU market. And some medicines could be left in regulatory limbo. The EMA, with a full-time staff of more than 600, is the largest EU body in Britain and has overseen pan-European drug approvals since 1995 from its headquarters tucked away among global banks in London's Cannery Wharf. 
An EMA spokesman said it was premature to comment on its future. Drug companies and healthcare officials in Sweden, Denmark, Italy, and Germany have all expressed interest in hosting the EMA instead of London. Firms in these countries are keen to be located close to the region's key regulator. The State Compensation Insurance Fund is seeking to cut its workers' compensation rates. A recent filing with the California Department of Insurance proposes an overall 9.5% rate reduction due to improvements in the state fund's claims costs. State funds said that it is evolving its pricing structure by introducing additional pricing ranges and risk characteristics that will further enhance pricing accuracy and make its rates more stable year after year. The rate action will have an overall effect of a decrease, but individual policyholders may see their rates increase or decrease depending upon their individual loss experience. Once the filing is accepted by the California Department of Insurance, the new rates should be effective this September. Last week, the state fund also released its 2015 annual financial report. The report shows an increase of $271 million in net income, which is 14% more than in 2014. 138,000 insurance policies were written in 2015. Net premiums earned were $1.6 billion. Policyholders' surplus grew by $164 million since December 31, 2014 and net investment income was $731 million. All of this good news. Vernon Steiner, the state fund president and CEO, said that 2015 was a pivotal year for the state fund's transformation into the agile and efficient workers' compensation carrier. Despite this favorable financial achievement, the state fund's board of directors did not declare a dividend on new or renewal policies that incepted during 2015. Instead, state fund designated an additional $750 million as restricted surplus to cover future expenses for pension and other health care benefits. It also continues to carry reserves for losses, anticipated future claims, and expenses that are prudent and adequate for its operations. This proposed rate reduction is atypical good news for the California workers' compensation marketplace. California employers generally tolerate unrelenting premium increases. At least for now, it is several other states that are facing the bad news. For example, Florida businesses could soon be paying almost 20% more for workers' compensation coverage. The Florida increase is in response to a recent decision from the Florida Supreme Court rejecting limits on workers' compensation attorney fees. The National Council on Compensation Insurance requested a 17.1% rate increase with the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation, mostly as a result of this ruling. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, 
past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for having joined us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.